Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Well, to most of you, I will say a, a welcome back to First Naz and to our future family series. I hope that you're finding it to be both helpful and hopeful as you pursue the belief that appears on the screen behind me. And I'd like for you, if you would, for just a moment, would you stand with me one more time? And um, I want us to take a look at this. It's, it can either just be a slogan for another forgettable sermon series, or it can be this confession of our faith together this morning. We can actually continue in the ways that we have been and get whatever that brings to us, or we can reach God's direction and believe that if we will submit ourselves to him, humble ourselves enough that we might learn something from him, that it could in fact change the destiny of our marriages and families. And so this becomes a confession of our faith this morning. Would you read it with me? My family's future can be better than its past. And now that you're familiar enough with it to be able to say it, would you say it like you mean it this morning? My family's future can be better than its past. Good, thank you. You may be seated. If you're here for the first time today, allow me to introduce myself. I'm Cliff Purcell, and I lead the pastoral team here at First Naz. I work with pastors Bill Bull and Aaron Middleton, and my primary job here is preaching and teaching. But I also come as a fellow worshiper and as a fellow learner on Sunday mornings. When I come to this place, it's not with this thing that I know that all you poor dumb folk ought to learn from me. Instead, it's what I have applied myself to learn from the scriptures this week. And so what I teach to you uh, many times comes with a freshness in my life as well. And so um, I'm not up here to pontificate about your marriages and families this morning. I'm here to learn how to do this in a way that is pleasing to God and that uh, allows him then to pour out his blessing into my home. I hope that's why you came this morning as as well. If you're a first-time guest with us today, just know that we're really glad that you've joined us and we hope that you find this place to be some kind of a spiritual home like we have. And uh, I'll be in the foyer at the end of the service today, and if you've got just a moment after the service, I'd, I'd sure like to meet you if you're a guest in our service today. Now, in order for that... Um, That truth, that confession that's on the screen, to be realized, we have to recognize that the way we Americans have done marriage and family have been, for the most part, a failure. I want you to feel the weight of the numbers one more time. Uh, it's, uh, It's no stretch, it's no exaggeration to say that most marriages in America fail. 50% of first marriages, 65% of second marriages... 75% of third marriages end in divorce. 50, 65, 75. That being the case, it's made two generations very gun-shy of marriage. So you know what they've done? They've said, let's see if we can work this relationship out first and see if it's going to be one that lasts. So they move in together. They cohabitate in the hopes that they can find out how to do marriage before they have one in the hopes of securing something for their futures. But here's what we found out, is that it just doesn't work. 85% of couples who live together before they are married will either not marry or their marriages will end in divorce. 50, 65, 75, 85. You get in the picture? Marriage in America is not working. That's marriage. Here's family. Less than 50% of children in America live in intact two-parent homes. More than 50% of children in America live in single-parent homes or are raising themselves. 
I know a handful of kids who live in homes where there are no parents present, and they're in our valley. Marriage, family in America, not working. How Americans do marriage and family just isn't working. And, we, and once we come to terms with that, we can then put ourselves in a position to begin to learn a different way of approaching marriage and family. We can learn to do things a little bit differently. And that's why we pastors here are teaching on these subjects over the next few weeks. It's because we believe, we know, that your family's future can be better than its past if you decide you will learn a few things about marriage and family and put them into work in your life. Last week, I did the unthinkable, just to kind of catch you up with where we are. In this modern day and age of ours, I unearthed two passages from the Bible's New Testament that describe what the Apostle Paul, who next to Jesus was the the most powerful and authoritative Christian teacher probably in history, but I unearthed these, these two passages that the Apostle Paul described as, quote, the way of love. You want to know how to do marriage? Do it the loving way. And he describes for us the way of love, a way of living that he said was rooted deeply in this belief that we are God's dearly loved children. That's where our security comes from. And that because God loves us so much, he wants to show us how to have marriages and families that please him, that he can then say, I'll bless that, and that he can then use to bring health and happiness to married couples and to their families. Guess what? That stuff spills over into life. It spills over into your neighborhood. It spills over into your workplace. It spills over into your extended family. God said, look, you're my dearly loved children. There's your security. Now, let me show you how to live in a way that pleases me, that I can bless, and that brings good to you and the people in your circle. Does that sound kind of good? Does that sound like something you want to see take place in your life? I hope so. That's what we're going to invest ourselves in over, we have been over the last few weeks, and we will over the next couple as well. Uh, but last week I started down this road that, uh, uh, well, it got me about halfway through a sermon, and it made it rather an unfortunate break, because I spent the entire week last week lecturing women. <laughs> That's right, I, the expert, am going to tell all the women how to be wives. Yeah, you wouldn't believe all the high fives I got out there in the foyer. None from women. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was just an unfortunate fact that when we were out of time, I was done with the section of the, pa- of the passage of Scripture we're looking at that, that offers some wisdom to women for how to live in the way of love that God can bless, that pleases Him, and where He can get involved in your family. But I also promised that uh, this week I'd really rough the guys up a little bit. So, gentlemen, I'm glad your wife's made you come to church today. And uh, two people got that joke. Okay. And three sympathy laughs. Thanks. Okay. Uh, if, if you weren't here last week, you want to know about the message last week, I'm not going to summarize it for you. Summarizing it does way more damage than it does good. I'll just say this, that if you want to listen to it, you can listen to our podcast. You can find the podcast by going to iTunes and searching for Lessons from First Naz. Or you can go to firstnas.com, our website, click on the media tab, and then you can click on launch media player, and then all the sermons, almost all the sermons that Aaron and Pastor Bill and I have preached in the entire time that I've been here are on the, the website, okay? So you can, you can check out last week's lesson if you want. Um, ladies, last week I spoke directly to you, but I told the men either to tune out and take a nap or to guard their hearts as they listened. Because it was very important that they not take the stuff 
that I taught last week and try to use it as ammunition against you. Today, I'm going to ask the very same thing of you. Ladies, either tune me out or tune your hearts to the way of love. But don't use the wisdom that God provides in his word and that we're going to look at today as a way to point out your, your husband's failure and inadequacy, okay? Can you leave this stuff between your husbands and God? Shake your heads or something so I know. Okay, all right, good. Feels like I'm alone up here today, okay? Help me out a little bit. Last week, I mentioned that the New Testament offers three commands on how to be a husband that God enjoys watching, that pleases him, that he can both bless and then use to form health in a marriage and family. I'm going to give them to you straight, and then I'm going to encourage you guys to not make excuses for why you don't do them. I'm going to leave those things between you and God at the end. Your wives are too. They just said it. But be honest with yourself over the next few minutes and let God check your heart a little bit, okay? Here we go. Let's just begin by rereading the two passages that I referred to last week, and then I'll break them down for you, the guy stuff. Would you stand with me this morning, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word? Lord, maybe maybe today, more than ever, I really need you to come and shed some light, your light, into my heart. Need you to do the same for my brothers, and I suppose for my sisters too. It's hard to change. After we've gotten in certain relationship habits for years, decades, some of us, it's hard to change. But your word really does offer this hope that if that if we trust you, that if we attempt obedience, we can count on your spirit to come and Give us strength. Would you do that, please? And Lord, I'm mindful this morning that there are a couple rows of teens sitting right in front of me. Probably some of them are gun-shy about marriage because they've watched us rough it up. Pray that you would inspire hope in them. And I pray that uh, whatever else is said today, that you might help create in them a certain expectation if we listen to God and we walk in obedience to Him, we can count on Him blessing our relationships. Now just turn on the lights, Lord, through Your Word, on Your Word, into our hearts. We need lots of light here. In Your name we pray. Amen. I'm reading to you from Ephesians chapter 5, and I realize that uh, what I put on the screen did not include the first two verses. So let me read that to you, and then we'll catch up with what's on the screen. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Follow God's example. Did they have that up there? Okay. They did better than me. Okay. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Walk in the way of love. There it is. The way of love. Just as Christ loved himself. So we're going to kind of compare these things to the way that we saw Jesus live. And then we're going to do it sometimes when it doesn't feel good. We're going to do it as, a, as an offering, as a sacrifice to God. And here he says, skipping down to verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now... You are light in the Lord. So live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. 
and find out what pleases the Lord. Now we're going to skip down to verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Don't hold your breath. That was last week. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain, a wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Then he quotes this Old Testament passage, Genesis 2, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Then he says, This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now I want to flip over to Colossians chapter 3. Again, the Apostle Paul, but he's writing to a different church, people in a completely different situation, a little bit different cultural context, about the same period in time, though. And he says this to these folks. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to take a look at wisdom for husbands. Three commands that describe for us how to walk in what Paul called the way of love. Three commands. The first one is this. It's found in Ephesians 5.25, found again in Colossians 3.19. Put simply, it says this. Husbands, love your wives. Now, I guarantee you that there is a lot that is being thought but not spoken aloud in this room right now. There are a bunch of guys who are thinking, nailed it, I love her, that's why I married her, duh, give me the next one's cliff, good to go on that one. And there are a bunch of women who are saying, you've got to be kidding me. That is so unfair. Because we get hard stuff like submit to him and show some respect to that fat, lazy underachiever that my mom told me I never should have married in the first place. He gets easy ones like love her. What's not to love? It's not hard at all. But let's return to our biblical definition of love that we learned a couple of weeks ago. We will find that it is not so easy. Read it out loud with me again. It appears on the screen. Love is... A demonstrated preference for the well-being of others, over and above myself, even at great personal expense, by the help of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. The command to love, gentlemen, isn't to have sometimes syrupy feelings about your wife. It isn't even a command to have consistently syrupy feelings about her. The call is to put her well-being out there in front of your own. It means that we are to daily make the decision to place such high and enduring value on the woman in our life that we are willing to get sacrificial in the way that we think about her and the actions that we take toward her. When we love, by very definition, we are saying, I choose you before me. I choose your well-being above my own. You first, me second. 
I know this is no newsflash, guys, but I'm just going to say it. Your wife is one complex being. Hmm? Anybody here say, oh, I got them women all figured out. Okay, yeah, there's no idiots in the room. <laughs> well done, guys. Whew. <laughs> yeah, she's one complex being. Her well-being consists of far more than a good roof and sufficient food. A wife's well-being is dramatically affected by the way you speak to her and the way you speak about her to your children. It is affected by what you don't say to her or about her. Guys, I want you to listen close because I'm going to share with you some ancient wisdom for marriage. Far more ancient than the New Testament stuff that we've been focusing on for the last few weeks. In fact, it's wisdom that has another 1,000 years under its belt. Good stuff. It's found in the Bible's book called Proverbs, chapter 18, verse 21. You learn this lesson, and you will be well on your way toward loving your wives in a way that honors God, that gets him involved in your marriage, and that also touches your wife's heart and helps her respond to you in the way that God wants her to respond to you. Here it is. Proverbs, chapter 18, verse 21. The power of death and life are in the tongue, and he who loves it will eat its fruit. You get what that means. You have the ability to to build up or to tear down your wife without ever lifting a finger. Kind words about her character or her appearance or her work or her cooking or her care for your children, they minister to your wife's soul. Unkind words relative to those things, they tear her down. They hurt her deeply that cause her memories that she will probably hold on to for a lifetime. Listen, um, I, I hope we're laughing some of that off, but here's the reality, is that all of us can remember the most deeply hurtful things we've ever heard, right? Yeah. Guys, listen close. Let's be done with excuses. Defending our unkind words with excuses like, she must not care about me because she's really let herself go. It doesn't cut it. She needs to know I'm unhappy, so I let her have it. That doesn't work. You have some relationship issues? Well, there's a proper time and place to sit down and talk about those things. I'd encourage you to get some help if you can't talk about them on your own. We have three pastors on staff who'd be glad to help you with those things. We can refer you to counselors if you'd rather not meet with us. There's a proper and productive way to sit down and talk about some unmet expectations. But insulting your wives in anger or unkindness is not the way of love. And it is not the way that God's sons are to live toward the women in our lives. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 said, The power of life and death are in the tongue, and he who loves it will eat its fruit. Listen, the second half of that proverb is just as important as the first half. You will reap what you sow when it comes to how you speak to your wife. Tear her down, and in return, you will get only what a torn-down wife can offer. Build her up, and you will receive what a built-up wife has to offer. Leads us to a second and a related command. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says this, Be considerate as you live with them. Paul 
and Jesus had a mutual friend. His name was Peter. He was at times a little bit of a knucklehead, and Jesus had to correct him. But if you're kind of walking through the New Testament, this, this knucklehead Peter disappears. And about 30 years later, he shows up on the New Testament stage, a far wiser and mature man. He'd been planting churches through what is now modern-day Turkey. He'd been under extreme oppression and suffering and resistance for the sake of Jesus. When he shows up, those things have changed his character. And now, as a wise older brother in the faith, he writes these words. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now listen, I just got to take care of that weaker partner thing, okay? Um, it's not saying anything about a wife's character. It's not saying anything about her psychological or emotional makeup. That is the word for physical weakness. It means she can bench press less than you. And that's all that means. Okay? It's just that people who were weaker in the culture to which this was written were seen as somehow less evolved and therefore less important. Peter, having suffered for his faith. Oh, by the way, he took his wife with him on his missionary journeys. She too had suffered alongside him. By late in his life, we lose track of his wife. There's no mention of her. Maybe, maybe she had been one of those martyred for the faith. Maybe Peter had taken care of her while she grew ill and passed away. But this wiser older man says to us, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Like it or lump it, fellas, this is a call to do something that is unnatural to many of us men. Male tendency, generally speaking, is to live according to assumptions in our relationships, right? It goes like this. Here's, here's relationships for most guys. Step one, get to know a woman, sort of. I mean, just enough to decide whether or not you like her. Decide whether you like woman, then if so, proceed to step three. Step three, choose woman, get her to choose me. Step four, assume she likes things as they are. We live happily ever after. It's kind of the modus operandi of most men. We get involved in this relationship. We like it. We assume she likes it. Let's go forward. Listen, we need to come to grips with the fact that that kind of living doesn't actively enhance your wife's well-being. And because it doesn't, it isn't the way of love. It doesn't put her first. It puts you and your comfort first. And that may be your definition of the good life, but it is not hers. Now listen, write this down. This one's important. Making assumptions is the opposite of being considerate. I think it's self-evident, but I'm going to explain it anyway. Making assumptions is the opposite of being considerate. To consider means to think about another person. To be considerate think about another person. Assumption is, don't think, just do. Making assumptions is the opposite of being considerate. The problem is, it's autopilot for men. It's what we do naturally, and we do it well. We assume things. The call of this command from Peter is to become experts in knowledge of our wife's preferences and needs. 
Consider them. Think about them. Investigate them. Live in considerate ways toward them. You have to think about this gal. And then commit yourself to a life of putting her first. I know it brings up a question, like some of the things that uh, some of the instructions for women did last week. What if she's harsh? What if she's unreasonable? What if she's demanding? Do I still have to pursue her preferences if she's completely cold? It's a good question. I'm not going to get to it this week. We're going to handle it next week. Okay, next week's sermon is going to be all the objections, and then I'll handle some of the wild cards about marriage from the New Testament, like divorce and remarriage, okay? So just understand this. Next week's sermon, it is all over the place, okay? It's to men, it's to women, it's to teens, it's to people who are engaged, it's to people who are divorced, it's to people who are blending families, okay? It's going to be all over the place. But this this is just instructions to men, and we're going to have to leave behind the, the questions for just right now. But I think it's also important to note something else at this point. Historically speaking, when the first Christians heard this teaching about husband stuff, it was absolutely revolutionary, groundbreaking, and previously unheard in human history. Because of that, first century Christians heard these instructions to husbands and wives almost exactly opposite to the way that we hear them. It was the men who were saying, you've got to be kidding me. Put women first? Whoever heard of such a thing? Look after her whims or whatever? Why do you think I got a wife? It was so that she could take care of the stuff I want taken care of. So she'd look after me and my needs and preferences. She gets the easy stuff. Submit, respect, duh. People are supposed to do that. Everyone does that. I've never given a thought to this other stuff. I consider it of women. It was previously unknown. It was previously untaught. As difficult as all that stuff was, all those instructions to husbands, those two, they hadn't heard the third command yet either. And it's cutting edge, controversial, and new to them. By the way, we didn't read it in any of the scriptures that we read this week or last because I skipped over that verse in Ephesians chapter 5. The reason I did that is because most preachers skip over this verse whenever they dare to teach about marriage and family, except they never go back to it. Gentlemen, we have to go back to one verse in chapter 5 and take a look. It's Ephesians chapter 5, it's verse 21. And it begins this this, um, paragraph on husbands and wives, and it tells us how we are to walk in the way of love and how to please God, how to be the kind of husband that God enjoys watching, how to be the kind of husband that God can bless, how to be the kind of husband that brings God's direct involvement into your family, into your marriage, so that he can make them healthy and holy and good. Here's what it says, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Guys, Hear me on this. The Bible teaches us to submit to our wives. It's there. Never before in human history had men been called to submit to women. Not in ancient Egypt, not in Babylon, not in Greece, not in Israel, not in Rome. Nowhere, no how. It was the church of Jesus Christ that first taught that men and women should offer one another mutual submission. In fact, that's the only way it can happen is, is in the offering of it. If there's a contest of strength in your marriage to see who will submit, 
Well, in the end, only one will retain power. Only one will retain authority. Only one will retain dignity. Only one will retain respect. Only one comes out of it with their well-being enhanced. Only one will emerge feeling good about this relationship. If there's a contest of wills to see who's going to give in and submit first, then the marriage may be destroyed before either one gives in. But when both husbands and wives come to one another with offerings instead of demands, both can benefit be pleasing to God, receive his blessing, and get him involved in the equation of strengthening this relationship. Gives rise to a question, maybe several, such as, uh, you mean I'm not responsible for leading my, my family, Pastor? You mean I have to let her take charge? Do I ever get to wear pants again? You know what I mean. I'm going to have to put you off a week. We can handle the objections, but I promise I'll come back to it, okay? Guys, let's be honest. Too much of the time, we've loved the command for wives to submit to us because we just want the power and the authority in our homes. We've wanted to know that ultimately, we should get our own way, and we should have God as our enforcer. And the only times that we've ever gotten upset with our wives is when they didn't do what we wanted them to do. Right? Right? Think through this with me. Is there anything else in Jesus' teaching that you can remember that says, I grant you power and position to get what you want at the expense of other people? Yeah, I can't remember any of that either. Is there anything in Jesus' example that teaches us to treat some people as superior and others as inferior in value? I don't remember that. Wasn't it Jesus' treatment of the people that everyone in his day considered worthless that blew everyone away? He spoke to women in public when no other self-respecting man would do so. He spared a publicly shamed adulteress when everyone else stood ready to execute her. He hung out with drunks while religious folks just judged them and despised them. He talked with and he actually touched people who had socially unacceptable diseases. And I will ask you, please forgive my language, but get this. He chose a known serial slut. The woman with the worst reputation in her town. To be his personal spokesperson to her village. Jesus turned the world upside down by teaching us to love to demonstrate that we have a preference for the well-being of others over and above ourselves, sometimes at great personal expense. We've got to get this. He didn't show love to unlovable people. He didn't show love to unvaluable people in order to make a point that in general we ought to love each other. He genuinely valued and loved others above himself. He didn't love them as less than because he didn't see them as less than. There were no less thans. There were no least of these in the eyes of Jesus. It's why he said, children get to be a part of the conversation. Women get to be a part of the conversation. Diseased people get to be a part of the conversation. Criminals get to be a part of the conversation. Foreigners get to be a part of the conversation. And religious bigots get to be a part of the conversation. 
He looked at all of those people that each one of us have a category for. And he said, they are people who are valuable in the eyes of God. So they're valuable in my eyes too. He genuinely valued and loved others above himself. He wasn't being nice to less important people to make a point. He looked at his fellow man and woman and saw them as the Father does, as truly valuable. Then he just treated them like they really are. Command to husbands to love our wives is to love, I'm quoting now, just as Christ loved, Paul said. Value, then treat accordingly. Guys and gals, husbands and wives, the command to submit is given to all of us. Wives, maybe you didn't like to hear me say it to you last week. I'll say it again. The Scriptures say that you are to submit to your husbands. Husbands, you may have never heard this before in your life, but I read it to you from the Scriptures today. It says we're to submit to one another. It means submit to her. It's given both to wives and to husbands, this command. The command of wives to submit to husbands only makes the Jesus kind of sense when it's matched with a command to husbands to submit as well. Ladies, a a command for your husband to submit to you makes no sense whatsoever without a command to you to offer him the same kind of recognizable love. Jesus went after the power structures of his day and showed them to be merely human means of manipulation. And marriage had become that in the first century. A power structure that treated women as less valuable than men. The Jesus way, the kind of love that that, that Paul titled the way of love, that kind of life is to follow Jesus' example. He was God come in human flesh, and what did he do? The God submitted to the humans, even when he didn't have to. Why did he do that? Because he loved us. And because he wanted to show us the way of love, the kind of living that, that God can bless, that he can use to make marriages and families healthy and holy. Guys, you may have heard it here first, but it says it in the Bible. Submit to your wives out of reverence for Christ. Let me boil down God's plan for marriage to just a couple of principles. Number one, truly Christian marriage is found in what we willingly, joyfully offer to one another, not in what we can manage to take or extract from one another. Say that again. Truly Christian marriage is found in what we willingly, joyfully offer to one another, not in what we can manage to get or take from one another. Secondly, a truly Christian marriage is found neither in strictly maintaining a hierarchy, man over woman, nor is Christian marriage found in defying a hierarchy, women demanding equality. It's found in wives willingly, joyfully offering what was formerly demanded of them. 
submission and respect. And it's found in husbands willingly, joyfully offering a number of things that were never previously required of them. Submitting to wives. Christ-level love. And being sensitive and considerate of her needs. Truly, Christian marriage is not found in maintaining hierarchy. It's not found in rebelling against hierarchy. It's found in joyfully offering what was either demanded of you before or what had never been demanded of you before. Husbands and wives, remember, your spouse's obedience to God's approach is not your concern. If each of you waits till the other one starts getting it right, good luck with that rotten marriage of yours. In fact, trying to to pressure your spouse or badger them into or manipulate them into doing these things, number one, won't work. You should have figured that out by now. And secondly, it's an abject failure to do the right thing yourself. Because as long as you are trying to manipulate, force, coerce, pressure the other into doing the things that benefit you, that's not love. And it's not submission. As Christians, we follow the teachings and the example of Jesus. He submitted himself to others, even to jerks. He was never forced to serve. He was never forced to love. He was never forced to do anything. He just offered himself and those things from a heart of love for the people to whom he offered them and out of reverence for his father. I don't want to submit to him. I know you don't. Submission is nobody's first love. You don't know what a flaming jerk my husband is. You know? You don't know what a cold-hearted shrew I'm married to. No, I don't. I don't know the specific things about your husband or wife that make you want to resist the way of love. But I do know what contributes to it from your side. Because it's the very same thing that tempts me not to submit to Laura. It's sin in my heart. Because I want to be in charge. And I want to get my way. I want the influence. I want the authority. I want the freedom. I want me first. Do you think that maybe in some small way your heart might be sort of like mine? Next week I'm going to handle, try to, some of the implied objections to all these commands. There's plenty of them. But I think there are real answers to many of them as well. So I want us to work through some of that stuff together next week. But this week, let's close by asking ourselves some questions. Where's my heart in relationship to this whole way of love thing this morning? Have I been taking the what can I get out of it approach to my marriage instead of what do I have to offer to my spouse? Guys, deal with the guy stuff of love and consideration and submission. Wives, deal with the the wife stuff of submission and respect. 
Don't concern yourself with the commands to the opposite gender. Don't let them be your concern today, or you will miss the chance to have God step into your lives and into your marriage and into your family by you becoming obedient to something that he has made plain in his word. If you focus on what the other person is failing to do, if you focus on their faults, if you focus on their weaknesses, you're going to miss the chance for you and God to fix the thing in you that has been broken and disobedient. And if you miss that, you will miss his blessing on your marriage. If you miss that, you close a door through which God wants to walk into your relationships and work with you to make them healthy, holy, strong, and durable. See, in in the kingdom, those statistics are supposed to get shattered. There's only one way that it will happen. It's if we quit pointing fingers at each other across the dining room table. Instead, humble ourselves before God and say, teach me to walk in the way of love.